Let me begin right off the bat by apologizing. I do not have a British accent, so what I say will not sound all that smart. <clears throat> Whether there's any content to it or not, doesn't matter. It just sounds much smarter when you say it with a British accent. Uh, I can fake a British accent, but my, my family begs me not to do that, so I will not inflict that upon you. We have very little time this afternoon, and I have a lot that I want to cover, so please Turn with me, please, to John chapter 8 in your Bibles. I apologize to our uh, interpreters over there. I will be speaking far too quickly, uh, and I know I'm not supposed to do that, but we only have so much time, and I have much I wish to share with you. I have been asked to address the issue of Christology in the context of reaching out to Muslims, and so I have titled uh, our talk, uh, Risa bin Maryam or Risa ibn Maryam or Jesus the Son of God. Why? Because if you have read the Quran, how many of you have read the entirety of the Quran? Not just parts, just the entirety of the Quran. Okay, how many of you read it in Arabic? Okay, because uh, obviously from the Islamic perspective, you have not read the Quran unless you've read it in Arabic. So very few of us actually have done that. And we would have similar proportions if I was speaking to a Muslim group as to how many had read the Bible. That means our two communities generally talk right past each other. We don't communicate very well. And what we understand of what the other community believes has been mediated to us by other sources than that other community. Uh, most of us do not have close personal relationships with individuals across that particular divide. And as such, what we know, we know because we've heard it primarily from, for us, Christian sources, or even worse, um, news sources, which is, on a theological level, MSNBC, uh, ABC, CNN, and even, I'm sorry, please don't throw anything, Fox News. Not your best theological sources of information, just in case you were wondering. So uh, there is very little meaningful communication going on, unfortunately, between the two of us. And so I am going to be addressing the fact that the Quran always refers to Jesus. 25 times his name appears in the text of the Quran. And he's always called Risa ibn Maryam, Jesus the son of Mary. And there is a reason for that, recognizing that the Quran is written 600 years after the birth of Christ. There is a strong reaction against what the author understood to be Orthodox Christian belief of Jesus as the Son of God. Now, what the author understood Son of God to mean, what your average Muslim today understands Son of God to mean, those are some of the major questions. Those are some of the major issues that we have to deal with. And if our ultimate goal is to bring the word of life to the Muslim individual. If we are willing to be used, if we are willing to love, if we are willing to risk to be able to bring that message to the Muslim individual, then the more accurate our knowledge is and the more passionate our love is, the more likely uh, we will be able to be used of the Lord in those situations. It is vital, however, that we never compromise when it comes to the issue of the gospel. That is, our scriptures do not allow for the option of Jesus as a mere prophet. As we're going to see from the Quran, Jesus was merely a prophet. He was one of many prophets. He was the Jewish Messiah. He was a very important person. He was virgin born. He performed miracles. In fact, the Quran says he performed miracles, and you and I don't believe he performed because of the fact that the Quran draws from 
extra-biblical sources from the Arabic infancy gospel, from uh, the infancy gospel of Thomas and things like that. The author of the Quran seemingly did not know that those were not Christian scriptures. They were popular amongst Christians, and so it, it borrowed from those sources. But they do believe that Jesus was virgin-born and that he, he performed miracles, but they do not believe that he was crucified on a cross. Surah 4, 157 of the Quran says it was only made to appear that he died upon the cross, but of a certainty he did not die. He was not killed. And so there's a denial of the crucifixion, therefore a denial of the resurrection, a denial of atonement, uh, the entirety of the gospel message there. But most importantly is the denial that Jesus is the Son of God. Our scriptures require us, therefore, uh, in all the love and grace and mercy that God gives us in our hearts to desire to see the salvation of other people, requires us at the same time to warn those that have been given a false teaching and a false message that that's exactly what they have been given, a false teaching and a false message. And a Jesus who is a mere prophet is not one who can bring you salvation. A Jesus who is a mere prophet will leave you in your sins. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 24. I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that, ego I me, I am, you will die in your sins. And then notice down in verse 28. Therefore, Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that, Ego I me, I am, and I do nothing of my own, but just as the Father has taught me, these things I am speaking. And so you have in this section, and it's a continuation of what began back in John chapter 5, you have a continuation of the role and the relationship of the Father and the Son. And the emphasis in the Gospel of John is not just the deity of Christ, but his absolute harmony with the Father. So that you don't have two different deities that are going back and forth and doing different things. There is a perfect harmony between the one who has been sent and the one who sent him. And then that becomes the basis of the perfect harmony that's going to exist between the one who is sent by them, by the Father and the Son, namely the Holy Spirit in John 14 through 16. And so you have the unity of the Godhead in bringing about salvation. But notice in this context that Jesus said to them in verse 24, I said to you that you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am. Now, obviously, you've probably heard the utilization of this very important phrase in the Gospel of John. It's found here in John 8, 24. It's found in John 8, 58 where at the end of this encounter, these false disciples, because you may know the story, you know that after he says these words, there are some people who believe in him. It's not an ongoing faith. It's a, it's a point action type faith. You, you recognize that by the end of this chapter, they're picking up stones to stone him because Jesus has said, before Abraham was, I am. And then you probably know in John chapter 18, uh, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Jesus says, who are you seeking? The soldiers say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus' response was, I am. And remember what happens to the soldiers when he says these words. They fall back upon the ground. But you might have missed one of the most significant uses of this, and that is in John chapter 13, verse 19, where in the context of the prophecy of the betrayal uh, by Judas, uh, Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 43 of himself. 
And he says, I'm telling you these things before they come to pass, that when they do come to pass, you may know that I am, drawing from the very same usage in the book of Isaiah of that very important phrase in the Greek Septuagint, ego aimi, in Hebrew, anahu. These are terms that are used as divine names of Jehovah. Clearly, in the Gospel of John, it is his intention to identify uh, Jesus with these very high, high words. So notice from Jesus' perspective, he is talking to individuals who are no farther away from him than you are from me. In fact, probably a whole lot closer. And yet they would have probably been very willing to accept him as a prophet. Sort of hard to argue when someone can raise the dead that they're not a prophet. They certainly would have followed him as the Messiah. And they wanted to after he fed the 5,000, but Jesus sent them away and went away by himself. And even when people came seeking him in John chapter 6, rode across an entire lake to come see him, what's one of the first things he says to him? You are unbelievers. You're seeking the wrong thing. These people would have accepted Jesus for something less than what he was, merely a prophet, merely a Messiah. They would have accepted him for that. Jesus doesn't want those kind of disciples. And he sends them away. In fact, he scandalizes them, so much so that in John chapter 6, you begin with 5,000 excited men, not including women and children. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 6, there's 12 confused disciples, one of which is the devil. Often said that Jesus began the church shrinkage movement in John chapter 6. <laughs> and so why is this? Why, why is there not an incrementalism? And well, let's go ahead and accept Jesus as a, as a prophet and then we'll move on to Messiah. And then, you know, somewhere down there, well, we might get you all the way up to believing in, in, in the deity of Christ. That's not an option that Jesus presents. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Why? Because there's a salvation only in one name, only in one person, and it has to be the right one. There are many false Christs. There are many false messiahs. But Jesus reveals himself to be the one sent by the Father. He's truly the Son of God. He is the Word made flesh. And since he is the only way of salvation, then that is the one that we must present to the world, which causes us a major, major problem. When you go into the Islamic world, what has happened is you have an entire people who are not familiar with the Old and New Testaments, which they call the Torah and the Injil. Very few of them have read these books. And instead, they have had mediated to them a different Jesus. If you've read the Quran, if you read all 25 places where Jesus' name is mentioned, and, and grand total when you put together the surrounding verses and veiled references. There might be nearly a hundred places in the Quran where there is a reference to Jesus. If you were to listen to them all together, it wouldn't take very long. There's no way that you could love the person that you would read about in those verses. Why? Well, only once, for example, does he even speak from an identifiable physical location. And that is in Surah 19. And let me read it for you. Surah 19, beginning at verse 27. At length, she, Surah 19 is Surah Maryam, which is the, uh, Mary's the only woman uh, mentioned by name uh, in the Quran, named a, a Surah named after her. At length, she, Mary, brought the babe to her people, carrying him in her arms. They said, O Mary, truly an amazing thing thou hast brought. O sister of Aaron, thy father was not a man of evil, nor thy mother a woman unchaste. So in other words, she's coming with a child and she's not married. But she pointed to the babe. They said, how can we talk to one who is a child in the cradle? 
He said, this is Jesus, he said, I am indeed a servant of Allah. He has given me revelation, made me a prophet, and he has made me blessed wheresoever I be and hath enjoined on me prayer and charity as long as I live. He hath made me be kind to my mother and not overbearing or miserable. So peace is on me the day I was born and the day I die and the day I shall be raised up to life again. Such was Jesus, the son of Mary. It is a statement of truth about which they vainly dispute. It is not befitting to the majesty of a law that he should beget a son. Now, please note that there is a constant concern on the part of the author of the Quran against the idea that a law would beget children in the standard way in which children are begotten. Now, we know that's not what we believe about Jesus as the Son of God. He has eternally been the Son of God. This is a relationship term. It is not the idea that God has a wife and has kids. Well, that's the Mormon view, but that's, uh, that's not neither here nor there. I have offered to Muslims many times, you know, you could view the Quran as a prophetic refutation of, of, of Mormonism. They just look at me and go, and that's really weird. So we'll just leave that off. It is not befitting to the majesty of Allah that he should beget a son. Glory be to him. When he determines the matter, he only says to it, be, and it is. Verily, Allah is my Lord and your Lord. Him therefore serve ye. This is a way that is straight. But the sects differ among themselves and woe to the unbelievers because the coming judgment of a momentous day. And so here you have the one time when Jesus speaks from an identifiable location and it's his cradle. And this was a story that was popular amongst Christians, but it came from the Arabic infancy gospel, which was written in about the fifth century. It's not canonical. The author of the Quran did not know that it was not a part of the canon. He's, he shows no discernment, no understanding of what sources he's drawing from because he's drawing primarily from oral sources. The author had no direct access to the written text of either the Old and New Testaments because they had not yet been translated completely or even in major, portion, major portions into the Arabic language. And so he's going on what he's heard. And as a result, there are fundamental misunderstandings. Other than that one place, every time Jesus speaks in the Quran, it's just a, it's just a disembodied voice that comes down from someplace. There's no, there's this, this Jesus, as one Muslim scholar has put it, is an argument, not a person. He's an argument, not a person. And you could never love him because there's, there's no personality. That's the only Jesus that the vast majority of Muslims in this world know until they encounter you. And then the question is going to be, what are they going to learn about Jesus from you? Are you going to be able to accurately communicate to them who he truly is? And even more so, will your life, your attitude, and your love toward that person communicate to them in a way your words never could? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. Let me give you a couple of citations from the Quran just to give us a foundation to understand what we're talking about here. If you really want to see some of the key issues, some of the key texts in regards to the Quranic understanding of Jesus, look at surahs 3, 4, and 5. Surahs 3, 4, and 5. Now, those are long surahs. If you know how the Quran is laid out, Beginning with Surah 2, you have the longest Surah, then Surah 3 is a little bit shorter, Surah 4 is a little bit shorter, etc., etc. That means you're jumping back and forth between different time frames in Muhammad's life. That's why you should never try to read the Quran from cover to cover. It won't make any sense. Uh, in my book on uh, what every Christian needs to know about the Quran, I give you a chart of, the, of what our best guess is as to the order of the chapters as they're written. At least if you read it that way, you have some idea of sort of what's going on in Muhammad's life. You can see some of the development over time. From the Islamic perspective, it's irrelevant. 
because the Quran has nothing of Muhammad in it. It is simply sent down uh, by God. It's eternal, uncreated. There's no human aspect to it. You can't ask questions about what the human author did or did not know, anything like that at all, uh, which has an extremely chilling effect upon meaningful exegesis of the Arabic text and the vast majority of, uh, of Islam. But in Surah 4, Ayah 171, verse 171, O people of the book, we are the Al Al-Kitab, we're the people of the book. We're also the Al Al-Injil, people of the gospel. Uh, sometimes the Jews are also the people of the book. Sometimes it's both of us. Sometimes we can't tell. O people of the book, commit no excesses in your religion, nor save a law aught but truth. Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle of the law and his word which he bestowed on Mary and a spirit proceeding from him. So believe in the law and his apostles. Say not three. Desist, it will be better for you. For Allah is one Allah, glory be to him. For exalted is he above having a son. To him belong all things in the heavens and on earth. And enough is Allah as the disposer of affairs. So please note, we are addressed a number of times directly in the Quran. And if you want to open a door, if you want to, to purchase the opportunity to speak into the hearing of a Muslim person, knowing what the Quran says to you is a great way of doing that. Yes, I know the Quran addresses me. And could I, could I tell you how I would respond to what the Quran says to me? I've never met a Muslim who said, nope. That gives you an opportunity. They're, they're shocked that there would be anybody who would even know that. Because most of the time, they don't know that. Or at least they do not know what that text might be. And so that gives you an opportunity. But notice what it says. Commit no excesses in your religion. There's a number of times where the Quran identifies Christian belief as excess. We have gone beyond what the true revelation of Jesus was. From their perspective, Jesus was a faithful Muslim prophet. He was in submission to God. He said the daily prayers, and he viewed himself as the Messiah, though I've never met a Muslim that had much of an idea of what the Messiah was supposed to do in the first place, especially because they generally deny that Isaiah 53 has anything to do with the Messiah at all. But he was a Jewish Messiah, and uh, so he was one of us. And what you've done is you've gone and you've exalted him and you've made him something more than what he really was. You have gone into excess in your religion and therefore it says, nor save a law ought but truth. So you're saying something untrue about a law, that he has a son. Now it does seem to me that the author of the Quran thinks that sonship is a very literal thing. And there are many Muslims that believe that we believe that God had a, a wife and had an offspring. And that seems to be what the Quran itself says in Surah 5, 116. We don't have time to develop that uh, this afternoon. But that's the thinking of the person to whom you're speaking. Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than a Razul of Allah, an apostle of Allah, one that was sent by Allah. And now you see why I look to John chapter 8, because our scriptures tell us very plainly and very clearly that if that is all you believe Jesus was, that is not enough. And according to John 8, 24, if you believe this, Jesus said, you'll die in your sins. And I don't know about you, but dying in your sins does not sound like a positive thing. It is very clearly something one wants to avoid. We're even told, say not three. Three what? Well, every single time the Quran says, say not three, the next line is, for Allah is one Allah. There is only one God. Now, if every time I say, do not say three, the next statement that I make is there's only one God, then obviously what I'm saying is do not say that there are three gods. 
And most Muslims believe us to be polytheists. They believe us to believe in more than one God. That is not, of course, what we believe. In Surah 5, 72, they do blaspheme who say, Allah is Christ, the son of Mary. But said Christ, O children of Israel, worship Allah, my Lord and your Lord. Whoever joins other gods with Allah, Allah will forbid him the garden and the fire will be his abode. There will be for the wrongdoers no one to help. They do blaspheme who say Allah is the third of three. For there is no God except one Allah. If they desist not from their word of blasphemy, verily a grievous penalty will befall the blasphemers among them. Those are strong words. And they're directed to you and me. Now, whether the author understood what three meant is the big question. Because very clearly, the, the author seems to think three means three gods. We say three persons and one God. So there is no direct meaningful interaction in the context of the Quran with the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, which was completely defined and thoroughly uh, hashed out by that particular point in time, historically, even if you want to go that direction. I mean, it's a biblical doctrine. But you have Nicaea, you have Constantinople, you have Chalcedon. All those were hundreds of years in the past by the time these words were written. There wasn't any question what the doctrine of the Trinity was. And as I've said many times, if Allah wrote the Quran, Allah knew what the doctrine of the Trinity was. And he could have refuted it very accurately if he had wanted to, but there's no refutation of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity in the Quran. But there is a statement, do not say three. Do not say three. A little bit later in Surah 5, Ayah 77, say, O people of the book, exceed not in your religion the bounds of what is proper, trespassing beyond the truth. There it is again. You've gone beyond. You've, 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 we, are, we are given a special status. There's only one religious group, only one religious group in the Quran that is ever spoken of in a positive way. Christians. Christians. Uh, so there is a special status for the people of the book. But... The idea is you have exceeded in your religion the bounds of what is proper, proper, trespassing beyond the truth, nor follow the vain desires of people who went wrong in times gone by, who misled many and strayed themselves from the even way. Now, interestingly enough, this was not the view of the early Muslims. But today, if you ask most American Muslims what this would be referring to, they're most likely to refer to one person, Paul. There is a strong anti-Paulinism amongst Muslims who read and engage in apologetics, what they call da'wah. And there is a real focus on the idea that that Paul messed the religion of Jesus up. The original disciples followed Jesus, then Paul came along and messed everything up and led everybody astray. Curses were pronounced on those among the children of Israel who rejected faith by the tongue of David and of Jesus, the son of Mary, because they disobeyed and persisted in excesses. And that's how they understand where we are. We are engaging in excess. We've trespassed beyond the truth. In fact, it is interesting to note, if any of you have lived in Muslim lands, when you hear the call to prayer, uh, you will very frequently hear Surah Al-Fatiha, the opening surah of the Quran, quoted. And you can always tell when they've gotten to the end where you hear, Valadhalim. And that last, uh, that last, statement is those led astray. Part of the prayer is do not lead us in the way of those who've earned your wrath or in the way who've been led astray. Now, who might that be? Because remember, the Muslims repeat this multiple times a day in their prayers. And you have to say the prayers in Arabic. Who are they? Well, the earliest hadith, a hadith, by the way, is a statement, action, 
of Muhammad and his first followers. They were collected 250, 300 years after the time of Muhammad. They become the very basis of Sharia, which is Islamic law. And in those earliest hadith, Muhammad always, when asked the question, identified those who had earned God's wrath as the Jews and those who had been led astray, the Christians, which means that every Muslim each day is praying not to be you. So keep that in mind. Uh, it's not like you're walking up to a blank slate here. There are, there are objectives. Uh, there, are, there are speed bumps to get over in seeking to present the gospel. Well, this Jesus then, Christology in the Islamic context, many Muslims have not even read all of the Quran, certainly from in, in Arabic. Only 16 to 20% of the world's Muslims are Arabic, and so... Uh, less than one quarter of the world's Muslims have ever read the Quran in its original language and hence in the only language in which it truly exists. Let alone have very many of them read the Hadith. The collections are very large. The two major collections, Sahih al-Bakari and Sahih Muslim, are eight and nine volumes respectively. And so very many of them are unfamiliar with these things. And so what, what they understand has been mediated to them through their imams, through listening to the sermons on Fridays in the mosque, in the masjid. And so I want to narrate for you a couple of hadith. Now, some of you know I'm a very odd individual. Um, <laughs> if you're going to agree that loudly, make sure you're not sitting on the front row. <laughs> Always know where your friends are. And keep them far away. Um, but I've listened to all of the Hadith while riding a bike. It's not really that funny, sir. Um, <laughs> just an announcement of a fact. But uh, anyway. Um, and if you've ever looked at the Hadith, you discover that the same Hadith are repeated multiple times in slightly different forms. So there was sometimes toward the end of this rather lengthy project that covered many thousands of miles and many, many, many hours where a hadith would start, and this would be about the 45th time I had heard the same hadith, at which point in time I wanted to ride into a cactus face first just simply because it would feel better. But it is a great way to remember things, and I have discovered the last two, last two car trips I've taken in a taxi were with a Muslim cabbie. And I think he ended up taking the long route, I'll be perfectly honest with you, because I started narrating Hadith to him. And he was fascinated that a non-Muslim could narrate Hadith to him. But you learn a lot about the mindset and the barriers we have to overcome in presenting the gospel by understanding the stories of a people. And the Hadith joined together the Sunni Muslims. Now, the Shia have their own Hadith that are very different from the collections that you have. Some of the Shiites will, will use some of the Sunni collections, but remember, the Sunnis are by far the largest, largest group. So they, they make up 85% of, of the world's Muslims. And so um, these particular Hadith are known all around the world. And so they really form, they almost form more of the unifying factor of Islamic belief than even the Quran does. The Quran's not a very large document. It's, it's, it's barely 50% the, the size of the New Testament, 14% the length of the, of the Bible. So it's, a, it's fairly small. 
and, but the Hadith are very large. And these are the stories of Muhammad. And these are the things that they give identity to a people. And so I want to narrate to you two Hadith uh, that help us to understand the Muslim concept of who Jesus is. Because the Muslims will tell you, especially here in the West, we're the second largest religion in the world that teaches you to love Jesus. It's an interesting way of putting it. Obviously, someone's been doing some marketing study. When you think about it, that's exactly what they're seeking to do. But are they really taught to love the Jesus of the Bible is the question. That's the question. Now, there are two important hadith to share with you. The first, now, both of these hadith, uh, I believe, I'd, I'd have to check on the second one, but I believe both of these hadith are called mutawatir hadith, which means they are universally accepted. Um, there are questions as to the, the, whether a, a hadith is sahih, which means sound, to be accepted. And there's all sorts of different studies and rules as to how you determine these things. And, and it's, it's a very, very complicated thing I don't have time to go into today. The first is concerning the day of judgment. The prophet was informed, uh, has informed us by way of Annas, the prophet said the believers will be kept waiting on the day of resurrection so long that they will become worried and say, let us ask somebody to intercede for us, our lords, that he may relieve us from our place. Now, in the other forms of this hadith, because like I said, it occurs in a number of different forms. On the day of judgment, there is this pause. And many of the others mention that Allah is extremely angry. He has great wrath. And so the people are extremely nervous about what is going to happen now at the day of judgment. And so what do they do? Then they will go to Adam and say, you are Adam, the father of the people. Allah created you with his own hand and made you reside in his paradise and ordered his angels to prostrate before you and taught you the names of all things. Will you intercede for us with your Lord so that he may relieve us from this place of ours? So the first person they go to is Adam. Adam will say, I am not fit for this undertaking. He will mention his error, which he committed, his sin, that is eating of the tree, though he had been forbidden to do so. He will add, go to Noah, the first prophet sent by Allah to the people of the earth. So they go to Adam. Adam says, I'm not worthy. Go to Noah. The people go to Noah, who will say, I am not fit for this undertaking. He will mention the error, which he committed, that is his asking his Lord without knowledge. He will say to them, go to Abraham. So Noah says, I'm not fit, makes reference to the error that he committed. So go to Abraham. They will go to Abraham, will say, I am not fit for this undertaking. He would mention three words by which he was evasive. In other words, the lie that he told. And say to them, go to Moses, a slave whom Allah gave the Torah, to whom Allah gave the Torah and spoke to directly and brought near him for conversation. They will go to Moses who will say, guess what? I am not fit for this undertaking. He will mention his error, which he committed, that is killing a person, and will say to them, go to Jesus, Allah's slave and his messenger, and a soul created by him and his word be, and it is. We just read the section of the Quran that that's making reference to uh, from Surah 5. They will go to Jesus who will say, I am not fit for this undertaking, but you'd better go to Muhammad, the slave whose past and future sins have been forgiven by Allah. Please note, nothing was mentioned about sin. Nothing was mentioned about error. 
Uh, the vast majority of Muslims do believe that Jesus was sinless. Then again, some of them believe Muhammad was too, and that all the prophets had to be sinless, at least in the sense of major sins. They reject all that Noah, never that drunkenness thing, never happened. Um, uh, Solomon, no, all those wives, no, no. Uh, they reject the idea that prophets could engage in gross sin for one simple reason. From their perspective, the prophet's uh, holiness is inherently related to the validity, power, and authority of any revelation given through them. And so there's a direct connection, and therefore they have to be primarily sinless. But when it refers to Jesus, Jesus says, go to Muhammad, but no reference is made to sin. Simply says, um, I am not fit for this undertaking. You'd better go to Muhammad, the slave whose past and future sins have been forgiven by Allah. So they will come to me, and I will ask my Lord's permission to enter his presence, and then I will be permitted. So Muhammad says, good for me. I will do this. And so Muhammad is presented as an intercessor for the world, for the entire ummah, all of those who have said, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, all those who have made the shahada. Sorry about that. Good luck translating that one. <laughs> Don't worry. I warned her ahead of time, and she said it was okay. So she's just going to go Arabic word, Arabic word, Arabic word. And there, that's... <laughs> I had to, you might say, this is a really, this is a really weighty thing. Why did you make everybody laugh? To wake you up. That's why I, the breathing sounds had become dangerously small. So it's right after lunch, the, the lights in my eyes, I can't see you. And I was just, I had your best interest in mind. Trust me, I really did. Muhammad continues, when I see him, I will fall down in prostration before him and he will leave me in prostration as long as he wills. Then he will say, O Muhammad, lift up your head and speak, for you will be listened to and intercede, for your intercession will be accepted and ask for anything, and it will be granted. Then I will raise my head and glorify my Lord with certain praises which he has taught me. Allah will put a limit for me to intercede for a certain type of people. I will take them out and make them enter paradise." Then there was an addition. I heard Anas saying that the prophet said, I will go out and take them out of hellfire and let them enter paradise. Then I will return and ask my Lord for permission to enter his presence and I will be permitted. So what happens here, and there's different forms of this, the number of times that he intercedes, et cetera, et cetera. What happens is Muhammad enters into Allah's presence and he's taught a special way of worship that is particularly pleasing to Allah, and then he is able to bring out a portion of his people, his ummah, into the presence of God. Now, some include out of hellfire. And some say this happens three or four times until the very least of the Muslim nation is brought out of hellfire. They're even called the people of the fire, and they end up going into paradise. Now, <clears throat> the Hadith are not a consistent body of materials, okay? Uh, this is one of the biggest problems from my perspective is that the divisions you have amongst Muslims, you have certain people who will interpret the Hadith in one way and certain others will look at their scholars and interpret it another way. And, and from my perspective, the real problem is that those sources are contradictory to one another because I can think of a number of Hadith where there's serious problems between what's said here and what is said in, uh, in other Hadith. 
Okay, leaving that aside, my, what I want you to focus upon is the concept of intercession. Remember something. As soon as you and I hear about intercession, what do we start thinking about? I think of Hebrews chapter 7. I think of Hebrews chapter 9. I think of Romans chapter 8. Who intercedes the people of God? Jesus. Who is the one who is at the right hand of the Father? His work is accomplished. He's seated. Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 7. He's able to uh, save the uttermost. Why? Because he ever lives to make intercession for them. You need to understand Muhammad never heard those words. Never heard those words. Had no understanding of them. And so there is no understanding. The intercessor, the mediator, has been taken away from the Muslim people through the ignorance of the author of the Quran. And so what do you have left over? You have a holy God. You have a law that's been broken. You have the most vivid pictures in the world of hellfire. In fact, in another Hadith, Muhammad was allowed, Muhammad, this is future, obviously. This is the day of judgment in the future that Muhammad will intercede for his people. During his life, he asked permission to intercede for his parents who had died as mushrikun. Mushrikun are idolaters. If you die as a mushrikun, there is no forgiveness for you. He asked permission to intercede for his parents. He was denied. But he was allowed to intercede for one mushrik, one idolater, his uncle Abu Talib. And because Muhammad interceded for his uncle Abu Talib, Abu Talib has the best place in hell. I always stop there because even if there's not what happened here, there is always the quizzical look on the part of many people. What exactly does the garden spot of hell look like? Well, we happen to know. In the various stories... Abu Talib is either standing in fire up to his ankles or he's wearing sandals that are so hot that his brains boil. That's the garden spot of hell. Dante had nothing (laughs) on the Hadith, nothing at all. The descriptions of the sufferings of hell are graphic and vivid in Islamic sources. So here you have the idea of Muhammad as an intercessor. Why? Because of the ignorance of the New Testament, because the ignorance of those writings, even to the point of quoting the Arabic infancy gospel and the infancy gospel of Thomas and things like that, as if they were Christian scripture. The author of the Quran does not understand the role of the Messiah and the accomplished work of Jesus Christ And sadly, many of the Christians to whom they speak don't know about it either. And that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. The result then is, if you take the mediator away, what are you going to have left? Nothing. Something's going to go into that vacuum. Guess what it's going to be? Muhammad. Muhammad. Would someone please turn that clock off up there? Um... Because I need to mention to you very, very quickly, I'm just going to have to summarize this. Al Isra wal Miraj, the Isra and the Miraj, Muhammad's night flight. One of the best known stories in the Islamic literature is the night that Muhammad was taken on a winged beast, a small mule type uh, animal, 
uh, a barak with, uh, with, wind, with wings. And he went to Jerusalem. And then from there, he ascended through the various levels of heaven. And this is an extremely important event uh, in Muhammad's life, in the story of the prophet to his people, so on and so forth. What is interesting to note is that Jesus was only in the second level of heaven. He wasn't even at the highest level. There is in that story a fundamental diminishment of the person of Christ. And it's interesting that when Muhammad's coming down, he encounters Moses. And Moses says, what happened? Well, uh, my, my Lord uh, invoked upon my people 50 prayers a day. And Mo- Mo- Moses says, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you need to understand. Um, they're never going to do that. I had to deal with the Jews and <laughs> they, they wouldn't do it either. So uh, you need to go back and get a, a smaller number. So in Echoes of Abraham at Sodom, uh, Muhammad goes back, gets 40, runs into Moses, mm, 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 30, runs back, mm, 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 mm. eventually gets down to five. And Moses says, still not going to work. And he's like, I ain't going back. And so they have five, the five daily prayers, which has been enjoined upon them. So what's important about that? Well, one thing that's important about that is who's, who's the one interacting with Muhammad? It's not Jesus. It's Moses. And when you speak to Muslims today, they will emphasize the fact that they feel much more of a kinship, not ethnically, because there's a strong anti-Jewish feeling amongst most Muslims, obviously, but as far as religion-wise, to the works-oriented Orthodox Jewish-type perspective with all the cleansing laws and dietary laws and so on and so forth, they feel much more akin to that than they do to Christians. And this really does demonstrate that what you have... The revelation of Jesus Christ, despite all the prophecies of what the Messiah was to be, all these things, they're fulfilled. And many Jews, because of their tradition, said, I'm I'm not going there. I, I can't go that far. And so they reject the Messiah. It's the same thing that the Muslims have done. They come afterwards, and yet they simply refuse to believe this tremendous revelation And let's admit, it's an amazing thing to believe that the creator of this universe entered into his own creation. There's a reason why Paul says the preaching of the gospel is them that are perishing foolishness. But that's what they've done. They've gone back to the old. They very frequently use Jewish arguments against Paul, against the New Testament, because there is no knowledge on the part of the author of the Quran of what's actually found in the New Testament. There's not not even an attempt to interact with it meaningfully. What that means, finally, in the last few moments that I have, what that means, we may be the only way to communicate to the Muslim people that we encounter these grand truths of Scripture. What I mean is atonement, intercession, the finished work of Christ, his role as high priest. Those shouldn't be advanced topics amongst us, my friends. They are simple biblical truths. And my, how the Spirit of God can use simple biblical truths to draw his people unto himself. That's the great glory that we have. We don't have to convince anybody. That's the work of the Spirit of God. But let me add one thing. I am deeply concerned, my friends, because I meet a lot of my fellow conservative Bible-believing Christians that cannot honestly look me in the eye and ever say that they have passionately prayed for the Muslim people. 
Instead, they'll be absolutely honest and say, I'd rather see them get out of here. Nuke them all till they glow. I've heard people say it, and it turns my stomach. You will not be used as a witness to these people if you do not love them, if you do not recognize that that is a person made in the image of God. You will not love them if you fear them. My friends, when was the last time you prayed to be used? Well, I don't know too many of them. Are you ready if you do, if you do run into one? Have you prayed for that opportunity? My friends, we can talk all about the gospel we want, but if we do not adorn it with love and mercy and grace and put ourselves on the line for these people, they'll see right through our hypocrisy. I am so thankful that I've learned to love these people and it's changed my ministry amongst them because they can tell. Their hearts are touched when a Christian will take the time to accurately represent them and then speak the truth to them. We kill ourselves to try to find one secularist who will give us five minutes to talk about spiritual things. There's an entire community that would love to sit down over a nice lunch and talk about spiritual things, but we won't because we're afraid of them. We're afraid to offend or we're just simply afraid, period. My friends, the Muslim people should see the people in this room as the individuals who will tell them the truth and they will tell them the truth in love. That's how we should be known. And so I pray that the Lord will lay upon your hearts a desire to be used to bring the gospel to these precious people. Will you join me with that? Let's pray together. Indeed, our gracious Heavenly Father, we know that the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. And Lord, if the laborers are afraid to go into the vineyard, afraid to go into the harvest, if they run the other way, what will happen? Lord, I pray that even now you would lay a burden upon the hearts of many in this room to pray, to prepare their hearts so that when they have opportunity of speaking the truth to the Muslim people, they will do so with boldness, with a great knowledge of the truth, with a clarity of the proclamation of the gospel. But they will do so with words soaked in grace and mercy and love, for we ourselves are redeemed sinners. May we be used as instruments in your hand to bring many to a knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. James, thank you so much. The words that come to mind to describe, I think, the impact uh, of your session is we now have, I trust, an informed compassion uh, for the Muslims, realizing that there is a Christology. It's a faulty Christology. It's a very small and, and limited Christology to not know about a mediator of Jesus Christ, to not know who he really is, should compel all of us to think more carefully and to pray more fervently uh, for opportunities to evangelize those who are enslaved to Islam. So thank you so much for your ministry today. 
Well, we're going to take a brief break, just about 10 minutes. So stand up and stretch your legs. If you have time to get that cup of coffee, that's great. Uh, But we'll begin at a quarter till. So uh, come right back, okay? Thank you.